Hey, everybody. Welcome to the discussion on Twitter layoffs on Friday. Oh, sorry. Right. Wrong, wrong discussion. We're in the green room for Disrupt TV. We won't go in there. Um, but hey, welcome, everybody. We're going to do our quick introductions. I'm Ray. I'm here with my co-host, Bala, and our awesome producer, L. And uh, going down the line in reverse order, Derek, where are you dialing in from and what are we talking about? We're going to talk about my new book, The Entrepreneurs, A History of Entrepreneurship. Very, very cool. Ajit, where are you calling in from and uh, what are we talking about today? I'm calling in from San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm going to um, chat a little bit about uh, building products that people love. Ah, passionate topic in the Valley. Brian, where are they calling in from, and what are we talking about? Uh, Brian Wong calling in from Palo Alto, California, and we're going to talk about the Tao of Alibaba. The Tao. All right. Well, with that, back to you, El. I guess we're ready to kick off. All right. Three, two, one. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. Uh, we welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in the World of Digital Giants. You'll see him on TV just about every day. I find him on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. My amazing co-host, as he said, he's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. He's almost at a million followers. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And we have one really amazing guest to kick off today. Who is it, Paula? Brian Wong is a former Alibaba executive and author of the Tao of Alibaba inside the Chinese giant, digital giant that is changing the world. Brian was employee number 52. That's wow. unbelievable. He was wow. the first American and only the 52nd employee to join Alibaba Group, where he contributed to the company's early globalization efforts that, and served as Jack Ma's special assistant for international affairs. During his 16-year tenure, Brian helped expand Alibaba's business presence in the U.S., Europe, India, and Asia, establishing Alibaba Global Initiatives, AGI, division, and was the founder and executive director of Alibaba's Global Leadership Academy. 
Brian remains as an advisor to the AGI team and regularly teaches courses on China's digital economy and the Tao of Alibaba management principles, which we're going to learn on our show. Brian's also the founder and chairman of Rad2, a digital uh, media company. Brian was selected as a young global leader at the World Economic Forum and is China fellow with Aspen Institute and a member of the Aspen Global Leadership Network. Welcome, Brian, to Disrupt TV. Thanks so much, guys. Great to be here. Thank you. So why, why is he even on our show? I mean, this guy's so overqualified. <laughs> I have to cut his bio. We only have 20 minutes. I have to shorten it. I know. We're like, what was he doing on our show? But hey, we're really excited to have you here. And more importantly, um, you know, we really want to get down to like, why, why did you write the book? Right? What's the inspiration behind it? Why did you think about doing that? I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're in a time of, it's an amazing time of, of change and transformation in yeah. China. So, yeah. Well, right. You know, thanks again to you and Vala for having me on the show. It's a great honor. Uh, you look, I wrote the book um, after, you know, almost uh, 20 years at uh, Alibaba. And as an American that was sort of, you know, out there seeing what was happening, I felt that there really needed to be a book that captured sort of the DNA of an organization that uh, and the founder and the organization that really defied the odds um, in a situation that most people thought would have been impossible. Um, Alibaba started really in a, an environment that where China had uh, no sort of internet um, sort of infrastructure. Uh, the founder was an English teacher um, with very little background uh, in tech. And I wanted to share that story first and foremost. Second, I thought now would be a great time for people to understand the inner thinkings and the ethos of an organization from China that was one of the most influential uh, of its time. And finally, just kind of share my own personal journey of uh, the realizations uh, that I came to working there about the role of business in society and kind of, you know, how these Eastern and Western uh, sort of cultural factors play into an organization. What was the English teacher's vision that pulled you into, and at 52, I mean, I often share the video of him in an apartment with about 17 or so yeah, uh, employees um, and and the conviction and 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 the uh, the the unique ability to inspire such a small group in such a small apartment to become a giant. What was that pull like? How did he? Yeah. How did he, how did you get there? Well, you know, I actually met Jack uh, strangely enough in San Francisco at the St. Francis Hotel. This was 1999, maybe around uh, September. He is actually in uh, the Bay Area to raise money. He met 30 VCs. He said that he didn't get a single cent from any of them, but I was fortunate no. enough to you know, meet him on that trip. And, you know, Lala, what he shared and the way he shared it, his vision for how technology could change China, particularly around uh, businesses and small businesses, very specifically, something that uh, you know very well at Salesforce. He, he had a very clear vision as to what he could do with that. And I always thought it would be interesting growing up in the Bay Area if you could take technology and mix it in an emerging market and see mm -hmm. what the impact would be. Um, I, I was very curious to kind of be a part of that. And so as Ray knows, I was working in San Francisco at the time, actually in the public sector. I was working uh, for Willie Brown and trying to understand how government and society kind of played you know, this, what, would, what the dynamics were in terms of helping address social issues. But I said, well, let's add the technology mix to this and go to an emerging market. And so it was really just an adventure for me to go out and uh, try something. Yeah. That's amazing. What an adventure. That is so cool. And what a ride that's been, right? And, and let's talk about the Tao, right? You're talking about the Tao of Alibaba. Let's get to the origin of the word Tao and, and what that means. And of course, you know, why you chose that for, for the title of the book. 
Well, yeah, I mean, we all know that Tao is very, very much a philosophical concept. Uh, it means the way, it means the path. Um, when we talk about the Tao of Alibaba, it's really the path uh, that um, Jack set in terms of trying to create uh, uh, an organization that was geared towards a very, very um, clear purpose. And I think that what I try and do is break down how that Tao um, is, is sort of um, conceptualized in sort of a management uh, way. And, and the irony is that Tao, if, if you read the philosophy, they try, they say that that, um, you know, the Tao is something that's indescribable. So then how do you use words to describe it, right? It's sort of this, this, this contradiction, so to speak. But, um, you know, I go through that process in terms of how the organization, how management goes about laying out the mission, the vision and the values and ties that to strategy and then all the execution aspects that go with running a business. Are there some key elements that you can talk to us about? And how long did it take for you to capture the unexplainable in the book? <laughs> well, that, that's that's an ongoing process, Vala. It's never done, right? Yeah. You know, look, I, I had the privilege of being able to take a lot of the, the codification of this theory and, and mm. uh, process from the chief strategy officer, Professor Min Jun, who really was the architect behind crafting Alibaba strategy, but also, you know, I, I read through a lot of the quotes and, and, the, and the conversations that Jack, Lucy, Joe, uh, Savio, Kwan, all of these are either the founders or the early executives that kind of laid out this, this approach. But if you, if you ask me what are some of the key principles, I'm, I, I'm really sort of keep it high level here, but actually the Tao has three aspects. One is the path in the way which I've explained kind of is the alignment of a company towards a, a common purpose, which I think we all sort of understand here, you know, in the tech world, how important that is. But it has to go beyond just a business object. It has to go, you know, something much greater than that. But second is this concept of harmony. The Tao is also about how you live in harmony with the world around you. I mean, it can get very philosophical in terms of the universe, but it can also get very minutiae in terms of, you know, an, a, an individual and their health. I mean... Taoism goes from from uh, you know that individual level to to the uh, uh, sort of a universal level, but really thinking about a company and how it interacts with its environment, um, that's that's the second aspect is this har harmony. And third is the dialectic or what I call embracing contradictions. And one of the very interesting things and frankly confusing things for me was how Alibaba seemed to always be um, talking about things in opposition. Uh, you know, for example trying to become a large, uh, the world's largest digital ecosystem by pursuing the smallest businesses, right? Um, trying to embrace the, um, the intuition of the East, but create structure for the West, you know, strict processes and systems is very much a Western concept. Um, chaos and order, you know, all these dynamics were at play and, and Jack would talk in riddles. He said that Alibaba is successful because it has no money, no plan and no technology. And when you hear that, you're like, this is absurd, but then you have to actually think about it and you can deconstruct it. And, and then it starts to make sense. And the answer comes somewhere in between the, the, the two oppositions. Wow. Wow. So wow. this is getting really deep. So I when know, you're sitting there, bit, yeah. <laughs> when you're sitting there on 969 West Wenyi Road, you know, thinking about these <laughs> concepts, right? Uh, one of the things that yeah, you, you mentioned was the fact that Alibaba wasn't built on cutting edge technology. It was actually yeah. built on a community concept of inclusivity. Uh, what, what does that mean? Right back to the riddles here, but yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. Um, this was something he always talked about from the start. 
about how we have to help small businesses become, you know, part of the mainstream economy. I think we all know that, you know, in, in the early days of globalization, it was really about the multinationals and governments that were really calling the shots. And to some extent, it still is very much that, which is maybe why we have this backlash against globalization. But one of the things that Jack envisioned is technology can be the great equalizer. And, um, you know, we've seen some of that, again, Vala through Salesforce, they do a similar kind of approach. It's like, how do you give small businesses a voice on, on, on this global stage? And so that was the first sort of impetus for Alibaba's early company, uh, you know, the B2B business. But as we started to evolve, we started to see um, other problems in society that needed to be addressed. Domestically, there was this whole sort of consumer market. And how do you serve the needs of a consumer that had limited access to products and, and you know, um, the, the, the global sort of market? Um, and, and, and how do you enable that? It was through creating an opportunity for entrepreneurs uh, to create businesses, but not just entrepreneurs. It was those who are kind of underrepresented, like women, uh, youth, you know, job creation. And that sort of took place in China. Um, but more importantly, it reached these areas like the rural communities. Um, this rural revitalization happened uh, largely uh, due to this uh, digital transformation that was taking place, connecting rural villages to urban areas and creating market connections. And I think that for me was a very compelling sort of aspect of, of the business and its mission. So when you talk about inclusivity, Ray, it's about how do you use um, the purpose of the company to drive engagement um, with the, you know the, the not only the market but also the employees that come to be a part of that. I love that. I I, I yeah. remember Jack uh, Ma speaking at uh, Davos World Economic Forum, yeah, talking about success is not just EQ and IQ. He he introduced LQ, your love coach. Yes. Uh, yes. And, I, and what an ama- and your, how your first boss look for someone who's going to develop you into a leader and and a great contributor and someone who cares about society and how values create value. So he he he, he really a people centric approach, but he did things differently. In your book, you reference um, like choosing rookies, people with minimal yes. experience, to take on big assignments. And how was that? How was that? Uh, uh, obviously, it worked out. But can you talk to us about his unconventional way of of, yeah. of promoting and and career pathing individuals within Alibaba? So this is sort of a theme, um, Vala, in in the book is how those unconventional decisions really made a huge impact on the trajectory of the company. And when you talk about rookies, um, so when Taobao was created, there was a big problem in terms of payment. And so how do you address this trust issue? And so Jack said, let's create a payment business, uh, but but that is you know really serving the needs of the uh, customers. And so he looked around the company and there was a, a fellow named Jonathan who was uh, really the sales head of uh, Shenzhen. Uh, but before that job uh, in sales, he actually was a hotel manager. Um, and Jack approached Jonathan and he said, Jonathan, what do you know about the financial industry? Jonathan said, nothing. <laughs> and he said, well, what do you know about PayPal? He said, nothing. nothing. He said, then you're the guy, you know, you should lead uh, Alipay. So, so Jonathan Liu is the founder, uh, CEO of Alipay. And the reason why Jack wanted him to do it is because he had no, uh, you know, legacy, per, you know, ideas on what finance uh, should be. And he was very customer centric because, you know, as a hotel manager, you need to think about the customer needs. And, and look what, you know, um, you know, what, what resulted. It was, it was a great, um, it was a great business that they created. The same thing is with Tainao. Tainao 
actually literally means rookie, but it's our logistics business. And um, Alibaba, you know, they they don't have a logistics background. Uh, but what they realized is that that ecosystem needed um, a system or, or or a service to move physical product. So they actually um, appointed uh, Judy Tong, who actually started out as uh, a secretary at the company and moved her way up within the administration department uh, to be the CEO of Tainel. And again, the rationale, no logistics background, but she understood what businesses needed, understood how to organize things methodically. And, and that was critical for building a data platform to manage logistics companies. What a great lesson. My company founder always emphasizes a beginner's mindset approach yeah, to yeah. innovation. And like this is living that mantra yeah. because, uh, you know, as a hotel manager, obviously, you know how to delight stakeholders. So you'll figure out the payment stuff because the most yeah. important part is how to fit, how to create a memorable experience. That's 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 tremendous. You really, know, yeah. you're, tremendous. you're part of that, too, Brian. I mean, you you basically spent a lot of time in a whole bunch of different roles. I mean, you yeah. had what uh, the AGL Academy, right? And the AGI yeah. for the Global Initiative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you were serving, you know, working with Jack uh, directly. Yeah. So, I mean, tell us more about those two programs and, and kind of how you've maneuvered around them as well, because those were things that were just invented out of thin air as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, you know, Ray, like like a lot of us, we, we like to be kind of in the creation part of a business. And, you know, when I first joined the company, I was like a product manager for the international website. Then I, you know, business development, marketing, I ended up leading the international business out, outside of China. I got to see amazing places like India, Turkey, Southeast Asia, uh, and, and see how the internet was impacting all these these um, you know small businesses, but the AGI and AGLA part um, of of my you know time at Alibaba was really the capstone. It was really intended to take what we had done in the last twenty almost twenty years and package that, codify it, and share it with the next generation. AGLA was really kind of trained the um, Alibaba's future global leaders. And they were kind of young professionals who would come in and we'd kind of share with them the whole ethos of, of, of the business management theory, but also these things like mission, vision, and values, the stuff that we talk about all the time, but probably don't give enough attention to because we don't realize just how important they are in terms of the foundation of an organization. AGI was then taking that same uh, sort of curriculum or, or, or um, content and then sharing that externally with entrepreneurs uh, outside of, of, of China, in, in Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America. And the reason, uh, Ray, why I, I think this is so important and why it was so enjoyable for me is because you got to see how entrepreneurs and their own perceptions of what they can do were transformed just by coming to Alibaba and seeing as, as one example of the power of technology, but the fact that you didn't need to be a dropout from Harvard. You needed to be a dropout from Stanford in order to create world-changing businesses. And you know what they say, right? Opportunities are distributed equally. Talent is distributed equally, but opportunities are not, right? Yeah. And for me, this was really a, a, an ability to you know, create a catalyst to inspire these entrepreneurs to do something um, bigger than what they believe they could. That's amazing. Brian, my final question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have lots of uh, startup founders and executives of large companies, maybe early in their career with Again, incredible responsibilities ahead of them. What advice? What's your? What do you want them to take away when they read your book? Like, what's that one thing that you're hoping for that the readers of your book can walk away with to really help themselves, their families, colleagues, and society as a whole? Well, I think first and foremost is just um, understanding how it is so important to 
uh, think of something bigger than just the business itself. And, you know, yeah. I think Alibaba is, is clear evidence that no matter what the circumstances in the environment and, you know, China, when it, when Alibaba started, had 8 million Internet users. It was less than 1% of the Internet um, sort of e-commerce, uh, you know, uh, uh, sales. And um, the per capita income was $800. You know, today they have over a billion Internet users. It's over 52% of, you know, the world's e-commerce. And uh, it's about 10,000. Uh, dollars per capita income. And um, so in, in Jack and his background being so humble and what it is, I think that entrepreneurs should just understand that if you can, I guess, if you can actually, um, what I say is Jack's greatest weakness was his greatest strength, even though he didn't have something like a technology background, even though he didn't have this pedigree education, he was able to mobilize people around that, that greater mission and become the, the unifier, the connector to drive people towards that common purpose. So Amazing. I think that's one of the big lessons I want to I want to sort of emphasize. Um, and then second is just be open to the idea that, you know, you should be able to shift your mindset, not, you know, Western mindset is always looking for consistency, right? Whereas this mm -hmm. Eastern mindset is about dialectics and coming to truth somewhere in between. And, and, and just try and take the time to understand how other sort of cultural perceptions can actually open your mind to the possibilities. I think that would also be one of the great lessons to take from this. Tremendous advice. We are here with Brian Wong, former Alibaba executive and author of the Tao of Alibaba inside the Chinese giant, digital giant that is changing the world. So hey, thanks a lot for being here and hey, you know, thanks, look guys. forward to catching up with you in person. Yeah. So. Okay. Thank you, Brian. Take care. <laughs> That's awesome. Amazing experience, amazing time. So. Yeah, and we have an amazing next guest who's uh, also an incredible builder, Ajit Singh, co-founder, executive chairman at ThoughtSpot. Ajit is the co-founder, executive chairman at ThoughtSpot, a company revolutionizing analytics and search and AI. Driven by his passion for creation, Ajit has built two, two multi-billion dollar technology companies from the ground up, ThoughtSpot and Nutanix. Prior to starting ThoughtSpot, he was the co-founder and chief product officer at Nutanix, the leader in the enterprise cloud industry, and the largest tech IPO in 2016, if you recall, Ray. You can follow Ajit on Twitter, and obviously an early Twitter adopter, because it's just Ajit S. A-J-E-E-T-S. <laughs> Welcome, Ajit, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Wala and Ray, for having me. Ajit, we're so happy to have you. I saw Diraj the other day at a school event for business and economics entrepreneurship. It was kind of fun talking to him. And it reminded me like, hey, where is Ajit? <laughs> and so, you know, you're in the midst of doing something amazing here. You've been doing it for quite some time. It's it's really about great products and, and companies. And, and that's, an, that's a huge opportunity. Why is it so important today? And what is that opportunity um, to actually build great products uh, and, you know, companies that actually go out and build bigger and bigger things and experiences from there? What's changed? Yeah, I think uh, this is a, a very, very special time to be building products. Um, and uh, the fundamental change that um, I see that has happened is that buying has become more uh, value driven and less relationship driven, whether it is consumer uh, world or enterprise, uh, people really want to uh, spend time with those products and uh, spend their money on those products that deliver a lot of value to them. Unlike you know, 20 years ago when you could sell people based on the relationship and, and loyalty. Uh, if you see how products are consumed and uh, used today, it's all subscription-based. Uh, people are giving you judgment uh, every month. If you're not continuously delivering value, 
then they'll kick you out. <laughs> you're you're so, gone, yeah. <laughs> you can no longer uh, lock in the customers. So what this means is that if you build a great product, you have a very high chance of success, no matter where you come from. You could be at a big company, you could be doing a startup, you could be in US or Asia or uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, if you really understand your users, your customers, and deliver great experience for them, uh, you have a much, much higher chances of success than uh, you know, uh, just even 10 years ago. You're right. And, and the product is just the beginning, right? We sell a product, we then sell services on top of that. It suddenly becomes experiences and we extend that out and it becomes a series of outcomes that are built on top of those experiences, right? And it, it just continues along, especially in that subscription world. Yeah, certainly. I, if I look at the evolution of technology industry, the very, very first generation was all about um, you know, features and functionality. Do you have these features? And if you have the features, then people will buy it because there is not too much choice. Uh, but the next generation is all about experiences. I really think that technology industry has changed into providers of, of uh, experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, you can no longer just uh, dish out a bunch of features and hope that people will use it because customers have a lot of choices. And the bar is being set by some of the most loved consumer products, you know, and that is actually creating a lot of uh, challenges and opportunities uh, for uh, uh, entrepreneurs that are building products for uh, enterprises, uh, because it's the same people that you're selling to, you know, the person who's a mom at home and using Instagram to see what her daughter is posting <laughs> is the same person who's using your analytics product. So you have to meet the same bar. Um, I, I really think that um, today's product leaders have to have a lot more empathy for user experience, uh, design, yeah. uh, really understanding uh, the day in life of a user. There, there is a lot that has changed and it's very, very exciting times. So as someone who's built multiple multi-billion dollar companies from ground up, um, it, 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 and, and, and you mentioned different personas and you mentioned how consumer behavior is now leaked into the business side in terms of defining where the bar is in terms of creating value at the speed of need, but with, with a consumer mindset, there's, there's, can I translate all of this that if you're building a company from ground up, you not only need a, a strong minimum viable product, but you also need a strong minimum viable community. Uh, so you can capture feedback in real time and shape your product with as much input as possible, um, with, with focus, of course. Uh, you can't please everyone. But what is that secret sauce that's helped you create such successful companies? Uh, how, how do you get this community feedback to shape the product? Yeah, I, I should uh, start by clarifying that I've been just a part of teams that have built uh, these products and companies. It's, of course, uh, nobody can do it all alone. Um, and even my own journey, if I see how uh, we've built product at uh, Nutanix versus uh, ThoughtSpot, and even within ThoughtSpot, just the last two, three years, how we are doing things versus uh, before that, things are changing so rapidly. Um, there is a lot more understanding of uh, user behavior, as you said. Um, you can uh, really understand which features they're using, which features they are not using. And uh, the minimum viable product is no longer enough. Um, we like to sometimes use the minimum lovable product. You love need that. your uh, customers, your users to uh, love the product. Um, without that, you will not have uh, much chance. The other big thing that has changed is the it's not the time you spent on a feature, but it's the number of iterations that you can do. Of course, you have to make sure your core platform, your core foundation, your architecture is solid. 
because that is something that is hard to change on uh, everyday basis. Uh, but uh, the, the end user experience is something that you have to be very open to iterating very quickly. And then, as you said, you have to have a community, you have to have a pulse of your users. Um, and uh, in the enterprise world, earlier it used to be very driven by uh, our head of design. He likes to make a distinction between um, customers and users. And customers are people who are paying for the product, a CFO or a CFO. <laughs> uh, user is actually, in our case, we build a, uh, we sell a self-service analytics product and people that are using ThoughtSpot are not typically the BI people. It's the marketing, sales, HR people, sometimes even doctors and nurses, they are using the product and they, uh, you know, vote uh, with the, with their uh, usage of the product and uh, we have to really be close to them. So there, there is a, a fundamental shift in how products are being built and uh, uh, I just love learning uh, how things have changed. Oftentimes people would come to me and uh, ask advice and I'm building a new company and I learned so much from those entrepreneurs that are just starting new companies. They're doing things in such a different way. It's, it's really fascinating. The amount of data that is available, the understanding of uh, user behavior, the third-party services that are available now to launch and build features very, very rapidly. Um, very exciting times. That's great. It's great to hear you, you promote like reverse mentoring, where people that are that that are you know uh, just starting out and you're learning from them and you're open to it. I think that's an incredible sign of successful CEOs that I know. They're very open to reverse mentoring. They're mentors, they're sponsors themselves, but they have the humility to say, look, everyone you meet knows more about something than you do. So yep. as long as you're accessible and you have an open mind, you can keep learning, which is which is incredible. Sorry, Ray, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no, it makes a lot of sense. And Ajit, you touched upon this thing about like, you now know what features are being used or what's not being used. And, and that's really this whole influx of data right on, on on what's happening and and the reason that an important modern data stack is there right is, is really about creating these new experiences talk about this transformations like for some of your clients that you've that have seen this right where you took something that was a really a static product and suddenly all these things and derivatives from you know business models and monetization models kind of emerge from you know that kind of transformation yeah so if i look at the apps that are being built now um they are all data-driven apps. And even though you may not see data in your face, but uh, if you look at uh, a product like Fitbit that I love, it's no longer just about knowing how many <laughs> steps uh, I took in a day. It is actually continuously monitoring all my activities and telling me I've been sitting on this chair for an hour. I should stand up and walk. And <laughs> last night, am I drinking enough? Get up, get up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Probably after this uh, uh, interview, uh, I'll be told by Fitbit to get on the chair. Um, so every app has become a data-driven app, and the modern data stack is presenting such an amazing opportunity to product builders to uh, use data in very, very new ways that were just not possible. And it's no longer about uh, taking a dashboard and plopping it into your app. Uh, data has to be seamlessly melded into the experience. Sometimes we say data is the new UX, uh, but uh, data is not always in your face. Um, so in our case, we have uh, many, many uh, customers that use ThoughtSpot in their own products. In fact, I really believe that in the next few years, the amount of data and insight consumption that will happen outside BI products will surpass what is happening inside. So uh, ThoughtSpot, we've taken a very strategic bet. We call it ThoughtSpot everywhere. 
which allows our customers to take any service from ThoughtSpot, whether it is our search capabilities, our live and interactive charts, of course, uh, dashboards, everything, and uh, underlying insights uh, that come out uh, from our AI engine, they can seamlessly integrate this uh, into their own products and deliver a very interactive uh, experience to their end users. That's great. That's great. Uh, you know, our first guest, Brian Wong, uh, wrote a book about Tao of Alibaba. What is the Tao of ThoughtSpot? Meaning, what's the philosophy that you champion in your company that other leaders can champion in order to build products that people love? Like, how, how do you approach this culture that says we're going to deliberately work as hard as possible to build products that people love? Yeah. What, 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 what's, what's the mindset you need to achieve that? Yeah, I'm happy to share what uh, we do. Uh, of course, it may or may not be applicable to everyone. So uh, we have this uh, core product philosophy. I like to call it LIMO, L-I-M-O, less input, more output. Um, <laughs> what I mean by that is, uh, you know, data products, historically, analytics products have been very, very difficult to use. And you need to be a super expert to get value from data. Companies are generating a lot of data. And with the cloud, you can store lots and lots of data cheaper, faster, better. You can do that. Uh, but how that data gets consumed by the end users, there is a lot of manual work that needs to be done in that process. You need to clean the data, do integration, do modeling, set up security. And then you're still talking about someone who tries to understand the business need, goes and spends weeks building a dashboard that gets seen once. And then you have suddenly 90,000 dashboards out of which you know 95% have not been opened in the last one year. Uh, what our focus is to... Uh, require less input from our users and deliver more value to them. And that's why we used, um, we started with a search-based interface, which everybody understands how to use search. Our search is very unique because it is built for analytics, not for just finding some pictures and videos. Um, but anyone can do that. Then the next generation we are working on uh, and we launched recently, we call it, call it uh, ThoughtSpot Monitor. That will allow you to monitor your business in a hands-free way. There are some specific things that everybody cares about. I, as a leader in our company, care about our customer uh, satisfaction, the quality of product, uh, of course, our sales and marketing uh, efficiency, those kinds of things. I shouldn't have to log into a BI product every day to understand what is happening. The, the, these products should come to me and tell me uh, this is what is happening and this is why it is happening. Your sales have gone up and this is why. Your uh, product satisfaction has gone, up, gone down and here is the segment of customers that is bringing it down. So now we can understand the problems with those customers and, and solve them. So this uh, philosophy of uh, Limo uh, has been very powerful for us to build our roadmap on a regular basis. Um, the mentality we promote inside ThoughtSpot, we call it 2% done, which means every day is a new day. You can, uh, you know, we uh, built a, a reasonable business so far and a good product. Uh, but the, the market we are in, it's massive and the problems are growing faster than the solution. So we should never uh, get attached too much to the past while we were very passionate by building it. But we have to keep reinventing because even as a startup, it's very easy to get disrupted. Things will change around you. And if you're not agile, then things, uh, you, you know, it won't work. And last, uh, the culture of the company, we describe it in two words. We call it selfless excellence. So we strive for excellence. We want to be the best team, best individuals. But we always do it in a selfless manner. We put our team ahead of uh, ourselves. And sometimes these can uh, come across as soft and fuzzy words. But uh, uh, if you talk to anyone in ThoughtSpot, you will see 
that uh, this is actually what we we do on a regular basis. Love that. Well, if I was talking to anyone at ThoughtSpot, I'd be remiss in asking you why our dashboards dead. <laughs> so go for it. All yours. Yeah. So look, dashboards are dead um, uh, because they present a very static view of the business, and that was fine yeah. 15 years ago. But today, okay. if you look at any industry, the decision cycles are shrinking. I like to say that we are in the era of you know mass scale micro decision making. I used to work at a Fortune 50 company 15 years ago, and there would be a top-down strategic plan for five years that gets rolled out, and then everybody sort of follows that. But now you need to empower your um, uh, team at the front line, someone who's sitting with the customers. If you are running a merchandising team, they're doing merchandising every hour, and they have to have freedom to do the right thing for the category that they're promoting on the website. Should I be promoting red shirts or yellow shirts? I can do that based on the trends that I'm seeing right now. I can't look at a standard dashboard that was built by some chief merchant and uh, you know do merchandising once in a month in a store I decide what I promote. So things have changed. If you're a wealth manager, you want to personalize, everything is personalized and that can only happen uh, if everyone has uh, self-service, if they can get insights that are relevant to what they are trying to do within a company. And you can't yeah, you're democratizing their decision making. You're using, you know, the ability to actually help, you know, help machine-based insights improve their actually human experiences. So that's it's huge. It's uh it's I mean, that's how you stay relevant. Uh you have to be able to deliver value at the speed of need. So real-time insights to improve decision velocity, speed and direction is is critical. So how do you structure a team? to be able to not only rapidly evolve, but also, you know, help companies graduate from what you said, describing descriptive use of analytics to diagnostic use of analytics to predictive use of analytics, and then ultimately prescriptive where, you know, what can I do right now in real time to help, you know, delight my, my stakeholders? How do, you, how do you structure a team to do that? Yeah, so, um, you know, a lot of uh, this change uh, is driven by technology, but even a lot more, at least in uh, businesses, is driven by culture. So um, uh, we spend uh, time uh, sharing how our customers uh, that have been successful uh, in de really democratizing uh, insights, how they have done it. And uh, the common patterns that uh, we have seen is that um, there is a really a desire uh, at the top to make a fundamental change and it comes from the business you know some business leader some cmo will say that i want to reduce churn and i want to uh, do that in a modern way uh, we are moving to the cloud um, it is moving everything to the cloud but for making real business impact i need to uh, look at everything in a very different way so there has to be this desire to change from the top and then you have to uh, combine people with new thought process with the experience of the past, because if you have legacy, it's not easy to transform, even though you might have a lot of desire. So you need to really empower the people that want to change, uh, but do it with empathy. Uh, if they don't have empathy, then it doesn't work. If you are a new company starting from scratch, you can do everything modern. That's all okay. But if you have a, a business of any reasonable size, uh, change management becomes the biggest uh, issue when it comes to democratizing data. And I, I think there is a ton of that happening. Uh, there is uh, fundamental innovation happening across the board in, uh, in the modern data stack. 
and five years ago it was still sort of this novelty that only a few people were doing uh, but now uh, there is a lot of uh, success stories on how companies have transformed themselves uh, to really become uh, a data-driven a cloud-driven company Wow. Hey, Vala, we're in the presence of a two-time unicorn founder, Ajit Singh, co-founder and executive chairman at ThoughtSpot. And you can follow him on Twitter at A-J-E-E-T-S Ajit's. Thank you so much for being here and uh, hopefully get to catch up in person as well soon. So, Thank you, Ajit. Thank you, Rayan. Thank you, Vala. Thank you. Incredible yeah, he, story. He, he, so. he graduated first in this class, super smart guy. And I just love the, uh, you know, when he sells selfless, uh, if you if you truly are selfless, you are more empathetic. You are more accessible. You are more generous. You are more mindful. You know, selfless. Being selfless is a superpower. Um, speaking of superpower, superpowers. this is the part. You know, there's a World Series going on, so I apologize for the baseball analogy, but this is where we bring up the cleanup hitter, someone who's going to hit a grand slam and bring it all home for us. Given the fact that our first two guests were exceptional entrepreneurs, and we have an entrepreneur expert. Uh, as our closing closing guest, Dr. Derek Lidow is author of uh, The Entrepreneurs, The Relentless Quest for Value. Dr. Lidow is unique in having successful career as a CEO of a global publicly traded semiconductor company, a founder and CEO of an innovative and valuable startup, and now a teacher and a scholar of entrepreneurship and innovation. Dr. Lidow is a professor of the practice at the Keller Center for Innovation and Engineering Education at Princeton University. He's the author of several books, and hundreds of articles on innovation, entrepreneurship, and leadership. But his new book is called The Entrepreneurs, The Relentless Quest for Value. You can, fo uh, you can follow Dr. Lida on Twitter at Derek Lida, D-E-R-E-K-L-I-D-O-W. Welcome, Dr. Lida, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much for having me. Very exciting. Thank you, sir. You know, Derek, we are so excited to have you. You know, we just had all these entrepreneurs on, uh, and but more importantly, it's really the understanding of the history of entrepreneurs, and and it's really at the heart of understanding what's going on. Too often, we fail to think about the history, and it's the history that guides us to help us look back and reflect on what's been done, what's not been done. And you've done this really well in your book, new book here. Uh, and so, as shapers of culture, what is an entrepreneur? Let's just start there, right at the very, very essence of that definition. Uh -huh. So, so I, entrepreneur is, is a very overused word. So it can mean anything to anybody and it gets, you know, used in a lot of different contexts. But, but ultimately, uh, if you want to understand entrepreneurs, you, you, you need to look at it in a way where it describes an activity that is, is universal, happens everywhere in the world, and also happens as far back in time as you can, as you can discover. And so what, what I discovered was that there are three universal characteristics of an entrepreneur. Hmm. And when, when you start looking at these three characteristics, it brings out so much understanding of what it is that they do and how they do it. So the three things are, Entrepreneurs are self-directed in creating, you know, taking care of their themselves and their families. They're self-directed. The second thing is they have a skill or a set of skills that their local, you know, neighborhood and potential customers care about and care about, you know, 
having and can't get any other way than from the entrepreneur. And the third thing is that they entice their neighbors to engage in exchange, you know, and to give them something that they feel is more valuable in return for delivering their skill. So you're looking for those three things. And you can find those three things <clears throat> way back in history. That's amazing. Uh, I, I, the self-directed part it clearly comes through when we had our previous guests talk about their yeah, yeah. ambition and goals. I recently uh, uh, heard uh, uh, Vinod Kosla, uh, uh, an incredible serial entrepreneur and investor. He said, an entrepreneur is someone who dares to dream the dream and is foolish enough to try to make those dreams come true. <laughs> so yeah. you definitely need to be self-directed to follow this. Like being number 52 at Alibaba when they had you know, 99% of their population not on the internet, uh, which is pretty amazing. So what are some of the discoveries as you're writing this book, reflecting on the history of entrepreneurship? Is there something that stood out to you that you didn't know prior to writing the book and during the research you were like, wow, this is, this is an incredible, uh, you know, new finding. It, it, it blew my mind writing this book. I've written two other books about entrepreneurship. Yes. I teach yes. entrepreneurship. <laughs> I, and when I looked into it deeply, you know, the origins of it and, and, and where it's impacted society, I found out this, this is bigger than anybody realized. I mean, here we're talking about, you know, exciting things and how big and creating Alibaba from scratch and, you know, uh, 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 companies that have trillion dollar market shares and the like. And we're underplaying the impact of entrepreneurship, mm. underplaying it. It, wow. it deserves more attention. So a, a thought experiment. Consider what the world would be like if entrepreneurs hadn't existed. You wouldn't have computers, you wouldn't have smartphones, you wouldn't have videos, you wouldn't mm -hmm. have any medical devices, you wouldn't have planes, trains, automobiles, you wouldn't have um, most clothing, you wouldn't have uh, apartments or most structures. It would be barren, <laughs> it would be barren. The entrepreneurs are the single biggest force of change that the world has ever known far more than governments or religions or big businesses, big established businesses can't hold a candle. It's the entrepreneurs that that create the world as we know it. And we, we need to recognize that and we need to understand what, what's going on here so that we can you know, better entice entrepreneurs to you know, do the things that we're gonna need to survive as a society. That's amazing. So no. when you're when you're at Princeton and you, you're 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 lecturing and teaching about the importance of entrepreneurs, do you see the excitement in the eyes of your students? Uh, you know, the next generation of Alibaba founders and ThoughtSpot founders. How are the students' behavior in the classroom changed in the years that you've been you've been teaching entrepreneurship? I've been, I've been teaching for a dozen years now, a little over a dozen years, and the nature of the students has, has changed quite dramatically. Um, back then, uh, 12 years ago, it, it was considered a cool thing. Okay, I'm cool and, and I'm, I'm different. Today, 
it's something that almost all students consider very um, seriously as a career choice. That maybe not immediately upon graduation, but they're, they're thinking about, okay, well, if I go do this and go do that, then I'll have experience enough to start something. So, so it, it, it has pervaded the, 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 the thinking about the possibilities of, of, you know, life and careers of, of our students. And I believe that that's not just true at Princeton where I teach, but I've, I've visited enough schools and taught enough, you know, classes as visitor and professor and stuff like that. But I can say that that's, that's pretty generally true. It's not Stanford, it's not Princeton, it's everywhere. Wow. And, and that's exciting, but, but I believe that as an educator, we have a responsibility to help students understand what they need to be successful at that. Definitely. I mean, we can't be leading a lot of lambs to slaughter, you know, and, and have people distort their careers <laughs> because, you know, right. so few entrepreneurs succeed. Yeah. But, but by helping them understand what succeeds and why it succeeds, we can give them a major leg up and make this a viable choice for them. You know, and, and you've been an expert in this for so long, right? I mean, when you wrote uh, Building on Bedrock, right? It was really about understanding some of those self-made entrepreneurs who right. built these amazing companies. You know, when you wrote Startup Leadership, you're talking about how, you know, only a few people can actually lead to create those businesses. And so now when we're talking about the entrepreneurs, right, for me, what's what was exciting was really your comment about, you know, why these folks have been the biggest determinants of individual and social behavior. Let's talk more about this. Like what, what are the entrepreneurs doing? How are they shaping culture, changing society? Yeah. So, so yeah, how can, how can we have such a huge impact? Um, well, it's because it turns out entrepreneurship is a collective behavior. It's not individuals. It's not, you know, I mean, what, what, and you, you also say it's cumulative too, right? So, and it's cumulative, right? Yeah. So it builds. And, and it get, it, so it's, you've got this exponential building of impact. And what's happening is that entrepreneurs are all watching one another and seeing what works. And, and you know, we copy and we try it out. And we, when we copy, we never copy everything just perfectly directly. There's always personalization taking place in that copying. And in that copying and that personalization, some of those things work really well. Those get noticed in this swarm of us all watching one another. And bingo, that now gets adopted, permeates the swarm, and is the new base upon which to grow even you know, more innovations. And so it, 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 it multiplies, and it multiplies very quickly, and it permeates with this, you know, watching one another and this swarming collective behavior of entrepreneurs. I mean, you're, you're quite the entrepreneur yourself. I mean, you know, so you're, you're, yeah, you're in the middle. You have, you have to be with all, <laughs> with yeah, all this incredible experience. Yes. <laughs> CEO of public company and, and, and founder of startups. Um, do we need more entrepreneurs in government? Do we need to be more deliberate in terms of who we elect into our government? Because, I think you've noted that uh, you know, you know, no matter what form of government, this, 
it's just un, ineffective in terms of dealing with entrepreneurial unintended consequences. So what are your thoughts about how do you make it so that it's less friction and more aligned to, again, uh, celebrate innovation and, 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 and improve innovation in that, that, that improves society as a whole? So I think we would all benefit if there were many more entrepreneurs in government. Entrepreneurs understand one another. They're far more effective. I and mean, I give stories in the book about, you know, how much yeah. more effective entrepreneurs are at controlling, you know, what's okay and what's not okay. And um, the governments are, 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 take so long to understand what's, what happened. And then they are very self-interested in not being heavy handed or not regulating. They, they, they just have inexperience in, and uh, bad, bad experiences in, in regulating. So they, they try not to. And, and entrepreneurs, on the other hand, they get it. They know, you know what you can say is out of bounds and what is okay. And, and if we did that, we'd have a lot less regulation, a lot more innovation, a lot more innovation. And that innovation would even be better targeted for the overall well-being of you know, society and the planet and all of that. You know, and you also, hey, one of the things that you're also spending some time talking about is really this notion of there's some and there's some hubris and hero worshiping going on with entrepreneurs. Uh, why has this been uh, misplaced? That's the other side of this whole notion where we get these like stars. So uh, because because it's it's the billion entrepreneurs that are on this planet that all are necessary to have this impact. And and we need to appreciate all of them and for what they've done and what they contribute and what they will continue to contribute. And we need to make them feel better about that. And entrepreneurs, you know, may be having a good time. I think many of us have a good time doing what we're doing. But that said, it's not like we're feeling completely appreciated by this. And, yeah. and, by showing a, you know, more appreciation, more respect for, for entrepreneurs of all types and all sizes, you know, it's okay if somebody doesn't want to grow to be a billion dollar unicorn, it's okay, you know, $50 million of revenue or $5 million of revenue or $500,000 of revenue. They're, they're working hard and they're innovating and they have to really work hard to stay, you know, in business and, and producing good products that the customers and new customers want to buy over and over and over again. And so, so we, we need, we need that understanding that, you know, we're underappreciating our entrepreneurs and it's not the single person. I, Hey, Jack Ma's an amazing person, you know, Elon Musk is a really interesting person, you know, uh, and, and, and that's fascinating, you know, in a voyeuristic point of view, but in understanding how entrepreneurship works, it's about all these other billion people. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what advice, like um, when you look at success trajectory of some of the most successful entrepreneurs, um, 
and 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 you mentioned the tree, the three traits, starting with being self-directed. Um, you know, what are some of the mistakes that can be avoided uh, and should be avoided based on your research of entrepreneurs in the history of entrepreneurship that the young entrepreneurs that are watching us now should 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 think about and and hopefully avoid. Well, it's interesting. Um, well, we associate entrepreneurs with innovation. Hmm. But I think we do a disservice by implying that each entrepreneur needs to be innovative in absolutely every single thing they do. That's not actually how this works. Entrepreneurs, and particularly young entrepreneurs, would be far more resource efficient if, if they actually copied a lot more and innovated in very, only very strategic places. Hmm. And this isn't, you know, being uncool in copying, that that's the nature of value creation. Okay. So, so they, they need to understand, you know, the, the, the basics of the swarm that they're entering. Yeah. And then you gradually innovate. And as, as you get the hang of it, that innovation can be a bigger part of what you do and can accelerate what you do and will get you at the leading edge of that swarm. But, you know, you're not going to get there from college all the way to the leading edge yeah. of the swarm at once. Don't try. Don't that that's going you're going to fail. Yeah, no, that's great advice. Uh, hey, listen, resourcefulness is very cool. So yeah, don't don't try to reinvent things that work. Uh, add your own special sauce and be resourceful. Ray and I, we didn't launch. This isn't the first podcast in the software tech industry, but it happens to be the coolest. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. so you know, we were pretty resourceful. Go ahead, Ray. <laughs> no, no I, I was just thinking, like you know, Derek, you've traveled around the world. You've seen this across different cultures. Is there a difference among cultures how people look at entrepreneurship or, you know, those same folks are still there regardless of what the culture is or what the backgrounds? So what an entrepreneur is, is the same in all cultures. Okay, it doesn't yeah. change. doesn't care, matter doesn't what change. systems I'm in, if I'm in capitalism yeah. or I'm socialism or if I'm in a different religion, none of that matters. Right, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Now, each religion may have their spin on it, their explanation that we accept as being part of that religion, you know, in Hindu and, and Christianity and, and Muslim, they all have their spin on it. No. But they all, they all basically, you know, want to encourage it as being a social good and, and, and try and dampen down the, the you know, blatant, uh, monetary, profiteering type uh, behaviors, but but entrepreneurs are delivering essential things in every single culture. Every weekend in North Korea, thousands of entrepreneurs come out of their homes, set up in these pop-up, you know, flea market type temporary. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 and yeah. They yeah. Sell everything. Yeah, every they do. Yeah. Okay. There's no no society ever, no autocrat ever has 
has been able to you know, wipe out entrepreneurs, let alone even control them. Okay. <laughs> it's the human spirit. Now, there's a quick question here um, from Angel Ortiz, basically asking, what do you do? What do you tell next generation entrepreneurs? How do they take advantage of these uncertain times? Because we often talk about uncertain times are great places to do this. Well, they are. They are. And, and start by understanding how you make other people happy. Yeah. Okay. Great and use that as your starting point. Why? Because at the core of entrepreneurship, it's about this relationship where you're going to deliver happiness to another person and they're at, gladly going to give you money in return. And, and so by starting at that core of how can I, how do I know how to make people happy? You're on solid ground. Always. That's a great North star. That's a great North star. Absolutely. Wow. We are here with Derek Lido, author of The Entrepreneurs, The Relentless Quest for Value. And you can follow everything at Derek Lido, L-I-D-O-W, a two-time best-selling author. Uh, and thank you so much for shouting with us. So, and thank please you, get his book. It's out on Amazon and ready to go. So. Thank you very much. Great, great, great summary, great recap of... Uh, the importance of value creation, importance of importance. Oh, the book is out November 15th. So please pre-order. That's what's nice. going on. Nice. Great. Wow, we got them early. Breaking news we got them authors. Early. Come, on, come on the show. Okay. Yeah. Uh, next week is a special week for us, Ray, because next week is oh. episode 300. We have spent 300 weeks uh, delivering, hopefully, value on this little show of ours called Disrupt TV. We have Grant Kahn, CMO of Pros, on the show. We have Christopher Frank, Paul Magoni, and Oded Netzer, authors of Decisions Over Decimals. And uh, we might uh, just leave a little bit of room for Ray and I to summarize not only this year, but the importance of uh, the 300 milestone. Uh, for those of you who have seen the movie 300, Ray and I are not going to battle, but we're going to talk about <laughs> the value of 300 episodes to us and hopefully to our community. Ray, your closing thoughts on three incredible entrepreneurs, uh, operators, um, you know, executives and authors who uh, shaped uh, episode 299. Yeah, I mean, everybody was super, super humble and modest on the show. These are some amazing people uh, that basically were sitting in the middle of some of the most amazing times. I mean, Brian himself sitting at the beginning of Alibaba, his journey from an MBA student all the way to Alibaba and back, really coming at it. I mean, I think there's a lot to be learned. It's going to be a great book to unpack, uh, to understand like how you could build this. What I really didn't get a chance to ask him, which I wanted to ask was, could you build an Alibaba in today's environment in China or anywhere in the world again? And it looked like it's a once in a time opportunity, but a lot of lessons learned, right? And when we got to, you know, uh, Ajit, I mean, look, this is a two-time unicorn founder, right? One of those IIT unicorn grads. I mean, him, Mohan, and Duraj built Nutanix out of nowhere, right? And, uh, and an amazing company, an amazing run. And they knew when to leave. He knew when to leave to go out and build something new and, and, and back to that spirit. And then, of course, Derek's been chronicling uh, what, what makes these people different, right? What's the spark behind uh, these folks that are super successful? And it's a little bit more than that, right? I mean, it's he's been looking at this for quite some time, uh, looking at Fortune 5 companies, looking at 
startups and now he's come back to right understanding the bigger picture so so we've put the, all that together here and uh, definitely an action-packed episode for those who are looking about entrepreneurs that's a great great summary um well if it's friday it's uh disrupted me we hope you join us next week for our 300th episode and uh, we also look forward to suggestions and perhaps we'll leave time for people to jump into the last segment of next week's show where you questions. can give us feedback. Yeah, yeah and contribute. If you're, a, if you're a regular uh, watcher of the show, uh, you know, we might pull you into the live show and talk about how we can better deliver value to you next year. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching and we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone.